Hey, podcast listeners, the Crown Refs Mentor Program and community just recently celebrated our two-year anniversary, and Patreon's been busy making their platform even better, and we're thrilled to share with you these updates. Patreon now has a collections tab, which features quick and easy access to our entire catalog, which includes over 25 of our exclusive shows and series, like Signal School, Rapid Responses, Guest Speakers, Crown Classics, Game Notes, Verbal Judo, The Wonderful Women of Officiating, The Sunday Swish, The CR Vlog, and Rule Resources, just to name a few. Not sure which tier is right for you? Our updated Crown Refs page has got you covered with a clear breakdown of each tier's offerings. And there's more. Patreon is now offering free seven-day trials to give you a delicious taste test of what's cooking inside of our Ref Kitchen. You can check out the reimagined Patreon app complete with community chats. Plus, we're introducing a new shop tab where you can grab individual episodes, exclusive instructional how-to videos, PDFs, pregame cards, whether you're a Patreon member or not. If our content has brought you any value in the past, we are kindly asking that you please consider joining the Crown Refs Mentor Program and Community for Officials. As soon as you sign up, I will personally send you a welcome email so then you can get access to our 36 Discord community channels. You can go to patreon.com backslash crown refs or click the link in this episode to come explore the future of Crown Refs on Patreon. I can't wait to work with you and introduce you to our incredible community. You're amazing. This is J.D. Collins, a former NCAA National Coordinator of Officials. It's been great being with Crown Refs. Don't forget, serve the game. Thank you for listening to the Crown Refs Podcast. The audio experience for basketball officials. Serve the game. Welcome back to the Crown Rest Podcast, and I'm really excited about our next guest, J.D. Collins, who officiated for a total of 24 years, 18 at the Division I level, working in the Big Ten Conference, the Big East, the ACC, to name a few, and also worked some important games in March, and I mean 10 NCAA tournament games, including the 2008 Final Four. He was also an alternate at the 2004 Final Four and worked in Elite Eight and four Sweet Sixteens. He retired in 2010, unfortunately due to a knee, in, a knee injury, but immediately pivoted into a conference coordinator and commissioner role, serving those positions from 2010 to 2015 and eventually hired as the NCA's national coordinator of officials. He held that title for seven years until recently retiring back in October of 2022 and is enjoying retirement life with his lovely wife, Jennifer. It's a pleasure to introduce J.D. Collins. J.D., how are you, sir? Really good, Paul. Thank you for uh, having me on. Uh, I have followed um, Crown Refs for more time than you realize, and uh, I want to give kudos to your members for trying trying to be better officials, which is the reason they're involved. And certainly I want to give kudos to you for all the work you do uh, to help make officials better. Uh, quite frankly, we, we need more people like you, Paul, and more organizations like this uh, to advance officiating. So when you ask, I'm all in. Thank I, pre I appreciate those kind words and thank you for coming on. You know, you're, you're highly recruited by me as I've been trying to get you on for like, uh, one or two years now, I had to call up Roger and use my my heirs card to connect us. Yeah, the reality is, if you just called my phone, I'd have said yes, and we'd have moved on. <laughs> if you're 
if you want to plug Roger, you know, he, he's a longtime speaker for you. I, I get it. You know, there's, there's, you know, there's probably some residual benefits there. And uh, I, I like that. So some career, as I just read off some amazing accomplishments, now that you've been off this past year, I'm sure you've had some time to reflect on it all. What were some of the happiest moments you've had as an official? What did you enjoy most? What stands out most in those departments? You know, I, I think that that's a really good question. Um, kind of segments of my career, you know, there's the early career, you know, busting chops, trying to get through the D2, D3, NEI, Juco ball, driving six hours for back then <clears throat> 70 bucks uh, to, to make your way and make relationships. Um, that learning of the experience you gain there can't be replaced. And I, I truly enjoyed um, doing that. And then obviously getting uh, a really quick uh, jump into Division One. I. I was hired by the Horizon League in 1990 and uh in 1991 i was hired by the mac the summit excuse me the mac uh the missouri valley the big 10 um a couple others it was kind of like oh here we go and um so having the opportunity to be at that moment that all of us officials want to be at end of a game crowds going nuts places you know places crazy and you're in that moment where you get a use your experience, use your uh, training to make a call that quite frankly decides the game or not. And I, you know, I don't want to sound overrated here, but I had several, several opportunities for those in my career. And you walk away from those just going, yeah, that's really good. And then the last thing I would say, you know, life is about relationships and the relationships that I have made certainly as an official, but then as an administrator, uh, I literally could call people in every state in the country and say, hey, I'm flying into Utah. Uh, can we get together and have a burger or do whatever? And, and the answer is yes. And to have those relationships means an awful lot to me. It means that um, in my efforts, I think I might have done a couple things right. And that, that gives me great joy to know that uh, those relationships exist out there. What are some of the uh, relationships you had? Who were some of the partners that uh, stood out working? That you, you know, were? think of the men's basketball committee. Um, <laughs> whenever I took the job at the NCAA, um, I met with my predecessor and, and he had, you know, had a, a tough run, if you will, at the end. And he didn't have a lot of kind words to say about uh, the committees that I would be working with, the men's basketball committee, the oversight committee, the competition committee. The, the men's basketball committee, uh, literally, guys like Craig Thompson, who is the commissioner of the Mountain West Conference, dear friend, um, uh, Chris Reynolds from uh, Bradley University, who was the chair last year, good friend. I could call him up today and say, hey, you know, I'm having a little difficulty with X and Y. Can you help me? And, and the doors are open. Uh, and that list really just goes on and on. And then, of course, uh, working with Danny Gavitt and Joanne Scott at the NCAA was uh, was special. Uh, they are overcommitted people that are doing great things for for college basketball and probably take more grief than officials. So uh, that those those kind of relationships are are critical in my thinking. And it's funny when you ask these questions and I talk about relationships. I haven't said anything about the games, have I? Funny how that works, isn't it? 
It's uh, there's there's more to this than just the games. Quite frankly, the games are the easy part. It's the other all the other stuff that um, I hope to get into today a little bit that will help officials uh, succeed. So you might have touched on it uh, a couple minutes back, but I just want to hear kind of um, that first early part of your journey, like maybe how you got into officiating. Talk about a couple of those years within the first six before you got hired into D1. So um, let's face it, uh, basketball was created in Massachusetts. We all know that. Dr. James Naismith, I got a copy of his rules right behind my screen here. Um, But Indiana built it Mm -hmm. and played hoops in high school, loved it, Um, went to a small um, Division III school in northern Indiana, didn't play hoops. I ran track there, and I missed hoops dearly. So I took a class, uh, like, and I've taught the class at a local university to try to get officials in, you know, involved in officiating. Took the class, started working seventh and eighth grade ball and anything I could get my hands on, industrial league, you name it. I uh, was fortunate that whenever I got out of school, came to Hartford City, uh, was working, a gentleman by the name of Gary Cheeseman um, started me in high school officiating. And he was my partner for about four years, I think, before I moved on to uh, working college ball. Uh, I want to write a note here while I'm while I'm thinking of it. This episode of the Crown Refs podcast is brought to you by RefereeStore.com. To save 15% on all United Attire products, enter Crown15 at checkout. We hope you enjoy this episode and do us one last favor before you listen. Have a great rest of your day. tell that story too um and he was a veteran official semi-state level official in the state baseball coach so he knew what it was like to have umpires coming at him he had a really good understanding and he taught me a lot about the game taught me a lot uh, what to do what not to do uh and also pushed me along um i worked three to four years of high school ball and then was very clear i wanted to work college basketball and quit high school ball and went all small college, a little bit of risk there, but uh, it all worked out pretty well. Uh, the story I wrote down was Eric Carmen and Jerry Kimmel. Eric Carmen assigned two leagues, one NAI, one um, Division Three, and Jerry Kimmel assigned the GLVC, and Jerry's a good old boy, and he passed away in the last year, and we were friends when, when he passed away. But uh, I went to a game at Owensboro, Kentucky one night, it was me, Bob Bloom, and, and um, a gentleman out of Newcastle, Indiana. We drove four hours down to the game, got paid 75 bucks. And when I tell you we were god-awful, I mean we were god-awful. We were so bad, and Jerry was in attendance. So we get in the locker room afterwards, and Jerry, in his, in his um, southern twang, says, says to the crew, boys, that's a fine piece of officiating I saw out there tonight. That's some fine work. And I looked over at him. I said, Jerry, come again. He went on, said it again. I'm like, oh, okay. And then he said, now, JD, you and I have have something to talk about. Now, I was working for Eric, and I was working for him, and there was always conflict, which is something officials always have to deal with, conflict. When when you're in demand, then you have to to know how to manage between people, uh, make the most of it. You have hard decisions to make in there. And that night, Jerry came to tell me, hey, 
stop doing the division three stuff. You're mine. So what he said was, JD, I'm going to tell you what, I'm, I'm not going to kowtow to no Eric common no more. And I said, Jerry, I, I don't, I don't understand. Could you say that again? He said, I'm just telling you, you got to make a choice. I'm not going to kowtow to no Eric common no more. You can either work in the GLVC Division Two for me, or you can work Division Three ball for Air Common. I said, "All right, Jerry." And I got up, went in the shower, showered up, dressed up. I got to the doorway. The other guys are still, you know, shaking hands with him and doing all that deal. And I said, "Jerry, I'll tell you what. I don't give ultimatums, and I never take them. You'll have my resignation letter in the morning." And I walked out the door. And some people would say it's really a dumb move. Uh, and it could have been a negative move to my career, but I was very, I'm a principally driven individual and I don't believe in ultimatums and I don't give them. And I certainly am not going to take them. And I think I can say now, I think it worked out. Okay. I think it worked out. Okay. So that's the building up to small college ball and into small college ball. Um, the obvious next question you have is, okay, so tell us about how you got in division one. And this is a great story. Gentleman by the name of uh, Bob Showalter was the coordinator of the horizon league, different name at the time, called me up on August 19th and said, JD, I've never taken an official from Indiana. Cause I don't want to be biased toward officials to from Indiana, but I'm hiring you in the horizon league. Great, Bob. I'm your man. Let's go. That was on the 19th of August. On, on August 21st, Bob Showalter got fired. Shortest career in, in college basketball here, history, trust me. Well, long story short, there's a gentleman by name, uh, the, the former commissioner of the Mid-American Conference, Jim Lessig, was retired. And they said, hey, Jim, would you pick this up and roll with it? So he did. So he goes to Florida with the schedules. And he said, at the, he told me this story five years later. At the time, Welmer... Uh, Valentine, um, Rucker, Licklider, all the, all the mainstays were the main guys. So he filled out all the referee slots and he got to the U1s and U2s and he had, he didn't know any of us. I mean, didn't know a single one of us. He's sitting at his kitchen table, rubbing his forehead. His wife walks in, her name's Marguerite. And Marguerite said, Jimmy, what's wrong? He says, I, I got to make these assignments. And I don't know any of these people. And as God is my witness. She looked down the list, pointed at my name and said, JD, I like that name. Give him a bunch of games. And the first year I had 25 Horizon League games, including Evansville at Xavier for the conference championship the last Saturday of the year. And my point to that story is sometimes it's not what you do. It's just being in the right place at the right time. And when that door swings, you better, you better come with everything you've got. And that's why one, my first year was one division one league and my second year was six is because that word traveled very quickly. Uh, but I think it's a great story because his wife loved my name. How about that? How about that? Would you recommend us using our initials instead of our first names? That might be a plus. You never know. It worked for me. So it might work for you guys too. It's not going to work for me. PM just doesn't have a ring to it. Yeah. Yeah. I think Tylenol has already stolen it. Tylenol. <laughs> You're out of luck. I know uh, we mentioned earlier, 
we mentioned earlier, I, I loved watching your yearly Arbiter videos. I saw them all seven years you were there. Um, I want to ask you from a training standpoint, when you Hey, Bo Borowski would be so disappointed in you right not, now for not plugging RefQuest, but go ahead with your story. It yeah, no hard. worries. You can listen to him on episode 300 and I don't know, 29. That's a guess. It's around there. There's there's his plug. Yeah, RefQuest is the best and it's taken over. Uh, but just reminiscing about the good old days on Arbiter. No, <laughs> um, but no, when you when you became national coordinator from a training standpoint, what were some of your first moves? Um, you know, when you took the job and you analyzed it from afar, what were some of the components that you wanted to change and improve on during your ten tenure there? A really good question, because the biggest thing that I wanted to change was the culture. Uh, I thought there was uh, division amongst officials. I thought there was angst amongst officials. And I thought we needed to build the culture uh, of the brand of official. Not NCAA, not JD Collins, but the brand, riding for the brand. And uh, I found that in order to do that, you have to consistently bring a message. And so, as you know, those videotapes would always have uh, the directives to reduce physicality right out of the gate. I'd read every one of them. It was a minute and 17 seconds every time. And all of you went, come on, we've heard this before. But there was a messaging to that. And that was the first step is make sure the messaging was consistent and always coming uh, first. Second step was if you're going to change a culture, then the training has to be consistent. It can't be once every five weeks or once every three weeks or two weeks in a row. It has to be every week. And quite frankly, for me to create uh, the in-season videos every week, I'm doing it from hotel rooms, airplanes. Uh, I'm literally recording in my car, uh, plugging my computer in, and I've got the, you know, the, the, the blue ball here that I record with. I'm doing that stuff nonstop over and over and over. And what you all never saw was that in addition to 17 or 18 films a year during each week of the season, I also put out weekly whistles to the media to inform them why we're doing what we're doing. Because the media certainly needs some attention relative to um, treating officials with respect. And so if they know the rules or they know what, what the focus point is, then there's a chance that we all might come a little closer to being on the same page. And, you know, that's, I remember my wife at one point, because there's just not enough hours in the day in this, in the NCAA national coordinator job. She said, can't you just do those videos every other week? Cause she hears me in here recording and doing all this stuff. And I said, honey, I'm changing culture. If I could do it, I'd do it twice a week. But it, it's a commitment level to try to make sure that the officials are hearing consistent messages over and over and over. Now, I've had many people since I retired say, JD, we didn't always agree with you. But we knew exactly where you stood on each and every subject, which is a real compliment to me. Um, you complimented one of the gentlemen on the call earlier about he said he was going to be here and he showed up. He's a man whose word. At the end of the day, Paul, you can take everything away from me. My word is the only thing I have to offer you. And so I take that literal and I, I'm, I'm very cognizant that when people quote me, I know what I said, when I said it and where I said it. Um, and th those kind of things are part of my DNA of uh, just who I am and how I operate it.
Love how you mentioned culture first and establishing that positive culture within the officiating community. It's the first thing that I talk about when I get on calls with, you know, some potential members is just that we're looking to continue to bring in high character individuals that are great partners, that are positive, that are kind, and that are supportive. So that was just the top of everything. And then it makes uh, the way we communicate and collaborate, you know, that much more effective. Absolutely. Absolutely. I love it. Uh, let's see where we're at. Where are we at? Got a lot here. Give me a second. Let's go back to culture. We were just here. Um, do you feel like NCA coordinators are too regional? You know, we hear this a lot, you know, do what your coordinator wants. And I feel like there's a lot of opposing viewpoints in, in that department. Could you just take a few moments and talk about that component? One of the things you have to realize in any transitional period, which we have been in and we will be in with all this conference realignment, over the last 10 years, there have become five uh, BCS-driven, um, uh, I'm lacking a word here, uh, consortiums. Consortiums alliance. Six leads. That's a really, really good thing. That's positive toward all of officiating. Uh, then you enter in, obviously, the personalities of the individuals in charge of those leagues. And each of those individuals who I have relationships with all of them have different personalities. And sometimes they have quirks that, oh, you work the G League? I, I don't want to use you. Well, I've never had that perspective. I've been a proponent of, excuse me, any training that an official can get, whether it's in the NBA grassroots, in the G League, in the W, I don't care where it's at, any training that they're getting helps them become a better official. And so I think there's positive to that. But the, the point I want to make here is when you have uh, new, which is five, five structures running it, there's going to be a positive initially, then there's going to be some downside. And, and that comes from leadership quite frankly. It's, you know, leadership's a critical issue for us as officials, uh, certainly when we're on the floor. Um, but that leadership may have, there may be some negatives along the way, but I'll tell you, they're on board 90%. It's that 10% that's, that people get uh, caught up on. And certainly at times that was difficult for me as a national coordinator. I'd have to make phone calls and say, why is he doing this? If he keeps doing this, then he that's fine in your league, but if he doesn't or he or she does it on an ongoing basis, they're not going to be working the NCAA tournament. So you make the choice, your call. Those are hard phone calls, but um, the good news is you get an early on positive. You get some, some, you know, waves in the water in the middle. And then eventually as those structures solidify and get um, cooperative, which is really what we need is cooperative. It's going to be better for officiating overall. The hard part for the lesser experienced official is it can make someone's career and they get advanced really quickly. It can also hurt someone's career because, well, I live in this area and I'm not getting love from this person. So I'm going over here. What I'd tell you is go where you can referee, go where you can get games. And the more games you get, the better and more experience you have. So I don't know if that answers your question, Paul, but that's kind of how I see it in an overall perspective. 
And lastly, uh, as far as coordinator questions, just looking back on your time, the seven years you had, what, what would you have liked to have done better? What could you have, uh, you know, improved on? I think you're you're bringing up the question about there's some you know some angst out there that ten percent. I'd really like that to have been five percent. I would have liked to have had more of an impact on that. I think I had a positive impact on it, and yet it still exists. And it's kind of like refereeing. We're never going to be perfect, but we can we can try to achieve that. And I, I think I could have done um, maybe instead of spending the amount of time I spent building relationships with the administrators, maybe I needed to spend more time um, not building relationships with those coordinators, but solidifying them to the point where if I asked them to do something, then I knew it was going to happen. And, you know, I'll take 90% as a, as a positive number, but that's what I probably wish with the coordinators. I, I would have had a little bit more uh, success in. When we spoke last week, you mentioned a fascinating concept called absorption rate and what is your absorption rate? Could you just elaborate more on this and provide our officials the most value on how to excel in this department? Thank you for the question. Um, so one of the things that, that, you know, if I told you the number of camps I've been to uh, through my career as, as an official, and also as an administrator, a coordinator of officials. Um, and one of the things that's most difficult is when I was on a court, I, I wasn't there to play games. If I was the person watching three officials, I was there to provide them my very best. And part of the problem is I would, most people would call me a little bit blunt. Um, I am just a person who tries to speak truth Sometimes it's hard to hear, but it's better to hear it than to go 10 years chasing something. And if somebody would have just told you year one, hey, this isn't your path. And I ran a camp. Uh, I assigned an NAI league early on. I ran a camp and I promised every camper I'd give them an assessment from our clinicians of where they're at today and where what their cap is. And some of the officials didn't like hearing that I said, let me be really honest with you. You're never going to see division one men's basketball. You got four or five things going against you. Some of them you can change, some of them you can't, but that, that honesty toward that, I think we certainly need more of it. But the reason I bring that story up is I would go to a court. I'd give my very best. I'm writing notes. I'm, you know, breaking them out at timeouts at halftime, certainly. And after the game, I'm providing everything I got. And then one of those guys that would be on the court would walk up to me afterwards and go, hey, got a question for you. All right, what's that? What do I need to do to move to the next level? Well, I understand we all want to move to the next level. The way you move to the next level is your absorption rate. How well do you uh, absorb the information that J.D. Collins and Paul and others are sharing with you? And you know what? Paul and I... You might have me on one court and then Paul the next court, and we may say two different things. And now you're thinking, what do I do? Well, you balance it out. You figure it out. You ask other people. But that absorption rate uh, for that, and it wasn't just one official, it was constant, was not high enough. Because if they would just take care of the 11 things that I had just shared with them, then they will move to the next level. 
And uh, I told Paul a story uh, for those listening. I'm not going to name the official, but uh, he's recently been in the final four. Uh, his absorption rate is higher than any other official that I have come in contact with. I've only had to tell him anything that I offered to him. I had to tell him once and then he put it in his game. Now that doesn't mean I'm always right. He would vet it out. He would talk to other people. Is what JD's saying really true? Yes, we've been trying to tell you that, but well, he was really blunt. He said, do this. His absorption rate is extremely high. So now instead of thinking about what am I gonna do to put in my game the next game, he's already got it in and now I can just referee. And I think um, for, for the lesser experienced official, if you will focus on <clears throat> your note taking, uh, focus on what you want to put in your game, focus on who you want to emulate. I had four or five guys when I was refereeing that I, you know, while I would say each of them was a mentor, they probably didn't know it, but I was pulling from them and taking this piece and this piece and this piece, putting it in my game and then moving forward with it. Um, absorption rate is something that I don't think any of us spend enough time thinking about or trying to apply. Now, Paul, does that definition, description answer enough of what absorption rate is from my perspective? Yeah, I mean, I think we could always go deeper with it, but um, your ability to adapt and implement the information that you're learning, how quickly can you apply it? So I think there's, there is a skill set that is a big skill set. Um, are you talking, were you talking about Ron Grover? I was not, okay. although I say Ron Grover's absorption rate is extremely high. Ron is a, Ron is a student of the game. Uh, there's not a lot that you're going to throw by him or at him that he hasn't studied and not just from a rule perspective, but what's the best way to handle this situation um he is truly without question one of the best in the country right now i think it would be interesting for us as officials to kind of listen in to you maybe share a couple of those 11 things that you wanted that official to implement in their game i don't know how fresh they are in your memory but we'd love to hear them i think that you know it's it comes to the basics uh i'm as you know i'm a big proponent of mechanics down then everything else falls into place. You have, if you're mechanically sound, because we're all creatures of habit, right? And I would tell you, there are programs out there that put a GPS tracker on officials. You run from trail to lead, that path, and then you run from lead to trail. All the movements we make on the floor, the width of that is about this wide. No matter where the players are at, we, we do that habit. And sometimes our habits are wrong. And so when an when a instructor says to you, hey, you really need to get two steps lower at the trail position because you're getting straight line on this play or that play, you need to uh, unlock your knees so that, so that you're not standing and stationary because you're more likely to engage. Uh, all those mechanical things uh, would be in that list of, of 11. Um, the other, the other things come down to, um, presentation and communication. I'm a big advocate of, um, how we communicate, 
what we communicate um, and the methodologies behind that. And what I will tell you is people think communication only comes from here, from your mouth. And our body language shares with people more importantly than what we say. And, and I can't get you to do this on, well, I could, this would be kind of fun. Can, can those of you on the screen that I'm seeing make a three-point signal like this? Everybody, come on, I want to see them. All right, now put it on your chin. Go ahead and put it on your chin. All right, stop and freeze. This is your chin. All right, why did you do that? Now, you know, you're embarrassed, whatever. Don't be embarrassed. I've spoken to groups of 1,000 people, and 999 of them have it right here. Because you pay more attention to what I do than what I say. So my body language is extremely high in the equation. We just proved it, right? We just proved it. And if, if officials would study, and there's, there's a thousand books out there on body language. Uh, verbal judo is one that I, that rings in my head. It has a lot of uh, resonance with me. Um, but if they would study body language, it's not only going to help them with what they present, but it's gonna help them read the audience. And the audience is that coach over there that's losing his mind. And you think it's about the play you just had and it's six plays back. And if you can read the body language, you can then get past all the screaming and yelling and get to the heart of the matter. So uh, helping officials on the court as part of those 11 things is what they're communicating with verbally, what they're communicating with their body, how to strengthen those things. And when you're, you know, you're going through and telling them about how they're posting a fist and, you know, they're doing this or they're doing this, however they do it. And that's not the way we do it in college. This is what you need to do. And then you see them a year later and they're still doing the same thing. Now you all could think I'm talking about those 11 things for uh, just for campers. That's not it. Every year in the NCAA tournament for the past seven years, I offered to those who didn't get in the tournament that they could call me after April 15th to June 1st. I would tell them what they need to do to change to possibly get in the tournament. Also offered to the 100 officials that were in the tournament, you can call me and I'll tell you why you didn't advance. And one particular individual is jumping out in my mind. And, you know, I'm, a, I'm an OCD kind of guy. So I've got notes from year to year to year. The first year he called me, I mean, I really want to work a Final Four. What do I need to do? I went through an hour of, of research on our systems, evaluation, pulled out keywords, numbers on down the line, offered that all up and said, here's three things you need to do. You got to step up and be an R. You can't be a U1 or a U2 your whole life and expect to be at the Final Four. We only take ours there. Bop, bop, bop. Fast forward a year. Hey, I'd really like to work a Final Four. All right. I did my research. I went back in the system, looked at all the stuff, pulled it up. And then I looked at those two sheets of paper. They were exactly the same. Third year called me again. And I said, really? Do we really need to do this? Or do I just repeat to you what I repeated to you the year before and last year? And got a message across to the individual his absorption rate was low. He didn't want to change what he was doing to achieve his ultimate goal. Now, that said, some of us, the Sweet 16 is the highest we will ever achieve. That's our cap. Some it's the Final Four. Some it's the NCAA tournament. Some it's <clears throat> Division II, Division Three, NAIA, high school basketball. It doesn't matter where 
your cap is at. You just need to be the very best you can be in that system. I tend to pontificate a little bit whenever you ask me questions like that. So I hope that's okay. That is okay. Well, we appreciate that insight. Thank you for being so transparent. You mentioned screaming coaches. I want to screen share. You sent me some interesting photos. I think we'll get a kick out of pulling these up. Maybe you could story tell on. I shut my blind so I quit getting the glare here. Hang on a second. There we go. All right. Still up above. Yeah, that's. Uh, what are you about to break up a fight here? What's going on? Well, Jerry Pollard and I uh, were working the Missouri Valley semifinals, I believe it was. And uh, the first half, uh, Coach Marshall had used up every flexibility he had going. And I went to him at halftime, stood beside him, hands behind my back, and I said, Greg, used up all your free passes in the first half. We were way too kind. Just understand, if you address officiating, it will be a technical foul. If you do it twice, I'll throw you out. He goes, oh, what about that play? I said, Greg, this is me being kind. So a minute into the second half, I whack him. That's not this picture. Two minutes into the second half, he comes flying on the baseline at Pollard on a call, and Pollard hits him and throws him. Well, he turns around, and he's pounding on the, on the chair. And when he stood up, I'm in front of him. And he goes, what do you want? I said, you got to go. He goes, you threw me out? And I said, nope. Jerry Pollard threw you out. I'm just making sure you go. And he was trying to get past me to get to Pollard to share his um, thoughts and concerns with Jerry along the way. One of my favorite pictures ever. That's a great story. You mentioned early in that story uh, coming out of the first half, oh, we let him get away with too much. Why do we as officials do that? And what do we have to change to, to lose that? fear of penalizing what is in the rule book i think we all have um a desire to be cooperative you know work with people and and you know we have that desire and yet maybe the person the coach is not he's not on the same page and we we just miss out on it that's one thing second thing is sometimes we're scared we're just scared to address it here's the funny thing my boss, Jim Bain, who I learned more from in officiating than any other human being, was at in the gym. I knew when we walked in the locker room as the referee on that game, he's going to light us up at halftime. Now, me personally, I've never been, as a coordinator, I've never been in a locker room at halftime. <laughs> never. Because that has a potential of changing an outcome of a game. But Boomer came in and he told us, that will not happen in the second half. And if it does, you guys are going home. Figure it out and walked out the door. Well, my methodology was, again, blunt to the point. I walked right over to Greg and said, Greg, I'm going to try to help you here. Now, he's, he's ready to fire at me and all this. I said, you don't understand. This is a one-way conversation. You don't get it. You don't get it. <laughs> Getting it. I'm trying to help you. If you respond favorably, it'll be good for you. If you do not, don't really care. And like I said, he lasted two minutes. So, you know, is what it is. He's got to go. All right. Uh, looks like this one. Tom Izzo is infiltrating your personal space. Take us through this. So 
This is a photo from the 2004 Big Ten tournament, Wisconsin, Wisconsin and Michigan State. Uh, in the last minute, Izzo winds up on me and I whack him. It's a tie ball game. Wisconsin scores. They win the game. Izzo goes home. And he's, he's, he, that's just Tom. I mean, I would consider Tom a, a dear friend, actually. But that's just Tom. Fast forward 2004 on the alternate at the Final Four in San Antonio. My wife wants to go shopping on Sunday. So she's out shopping the, the river walk. And I hate, I, when I say I hate people, you guys are going to get the wrong image here. I hate quantities of people. So I was standing on one of the bridges, just watching, looking, see who I knew. They'd come up, we'd talk. And I see Izzo at the bottom. I see Izzo at the bottom of this bridge with his wife. And I yell, Izzo, you suck. You <laughs> suck, Izzo. And he turns and looks and sees me. And what I don't know is my wife is walking up behind me. And Izzo runs up, bear hugs me. And he's just so proud that a Big Ten official is being represented at the, at the Final Four. He's hugging on me. And my wife literally says, honey, I, I don't understand. Sir, you were screaming your head off at him, you know, three weeks ago. And, and he gave you a technical. He goes, that's all part of the show. Mrs. Collins, don't don't worry about that. I love this guy. It was a great moment to capture that photo because that photo doesn't tell the whole story. What what that looks like as to non-officials when I show them that photo is oh he was ripping you bad so on and so forth. Yeah, he was, but there was a penalty with that. We issued a technical foul. He lost the game. Life goes on, but the trust and respect that Tom gave me proved the point and furthermore and i know all of you have heard this but i don't really give a rip if they like me i care immensely if they respect me and trust me and that's what we're trying to achieve in officiating is to get the trust and respect uh from the coaches coach k here uh, what is he complaining about at this moment oh um i am not sure but whatever it was, I gave him an ear. That's what I'll tell you. Um, a lot of people would want to get, you know, chummy with with Coach K. I had a job to do. I did it, and um, really didn't. Other than in my NCAA national coordinator role, when I would go to games, I always walked in, greeted the officials, and then I went into each coach, said, "Hey, I'm here. Just want you to know any questions, comments, whatever." And he was always. Uh, the ultimate gentleman with me and now he'd make his points of what he liked and didn't like about the game. And, but he was always talking about the 10,000 foot level. He was never talking about a game. He was talking about the game, which I uh, really, really respect with coach K. How was it being a bridge to the coaches and the officials? You were the connection point between the two. How was it juggling that? Um, really pretty easy. Um, my job was to let, to try to communicate, inform and educate coaches that officials are extremely professional. They're extremely talented. Uh, certainly at the NCAA tournament level, when you run 95% call accuracy, uh, have your players shoot 95%, will you? You know, I mean, they, 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 they would get it. And I had the opportunity, uh, to go in coaches all across America. And I could hear from them 
I could hear from them what their concerns were, apply that back to a rules committee, but I could also try to communicate to them, you're making this way too personal with official A, B, C, or D, that they don't have, care less whether you, you win or lose, quite frankly, so. Are the bells coming in on your end? I'm hearing a little ding, but not I, much of it. All right, sorry about that. You're a popular fella. <laughs> group text. I have no idea how to turn it off on the computer. So, um, sorry about that. I'll edit that out. No worries. Um, feel free to put your questions through the chat for JD. You can uh, put it through the chat. I'll queue you up, or you can just raise your hand. As JD mentioned to me last week, he is enhanced by these questions. So, feel free to, to ask away. I would also say there are no dumb questions. Um, the only question that is dumb is the one that doesn't get asked. And um, I just find it's, you know, you have something you want to know. Let me try to help you with it if I can. Who wants to go first? Antonio. Uh, no, no. Johnny. I want, I want to ask a question uh, for the upcoming season. What would be the, the points of emphasis for your referees for the upcoming season? If I would compare with Europe, let's say like this. The good news is, since I retired, I cannot tell you uh, at this point in time what those points of emphasis are. What I do know is the change to our block charge rule, um, the play at the basket. <clears throat> it used to be the defender had to have both feet on the floor before he left the floor to go up. And now it's going to be the plant foot. So if the, the guy that's going to the basket plants his foot, and the defender's not there, it's going to be a block. And I think that while it sounds simple, it's a significant shift for officials because we have always refereed the defense first mm. offense. And in this scenario, you're going to have to referee the offense coming there first and then the defense. And so it's, it's a reverse look. And I think we can get successful at it. But if you want to talk about the point of emphasis, um, the easy way out for that is, I don't know if you've looked at any film or not, but the plant foot happens a long time before crash happens. And it's going to move that out to the point where last year, if we were 60% charges and 40% blocks, it's going to go to 80% blocks and 20% charges. That's a significant change to our game it will increase scoring more free throws so on and so on uh the hard part is the balancing you know really across the country 50 percent of the coaches are offensive minded and 50 percent are defensive minded the defensive minded coaches are going to have to adjust more than anyone else this coming season which means the defensive minded coaches are going to be more frustrated than the offensive-minded coaches. So as we're looking at their body language, that's the thing that, you know, they're working every day in practice to, they're going to teach their guy, you got to get there by the plant, you know, get there earlier, get there earlier. I don't know if they can be successful at that or not. So that's probably the biggest thing that you're going to see in college basketball this year. Good question. Yeah, great I have, question. Another, I have another question, personal yeah. question now. Uh, you were 
telling that you had so many work with your computer every time, cutting clips, videos, making weekly reports. And uh, I'm thinking about, I am doing the same thing. It's now here, let's say, almost 1.30 in the, in the morning mm -hmm. in Europe. Uh, I'm also sometimes somebody who is ready to learn every time, so from guest speakers also. But mainly I go to sleep at 3, 4 o'clock in the morning because I'm always busy with basketball. But my wife is killing me. How is the relationship with your wife? You know, I, uh, that's a really good question. Uh, by the way, RefQuest is the answer to your problems. I can yes. assure you. <laughs> All right. Um, my relationship with my wife is great. Um, she, I, I ran a, a president, CEO, and owner of a business that we sold in in 06. And I refereed full-time from 06 to 10 when I blew my knee out. And she said to me, hey, can you work more games? And I said, you want me to be away more? She goes, no, you can have November 1st to April 1st. Work it every night if you want to. But from April 1st to November 1st, it's all mine. And I went, you know what? That's a fair deal. And, and it comes down to compromise. I mean, I will tell you that when I was trying to run a business and officiate at a high level and doing things, she probably took the short end of the stick, quite frankly. Uh, we've been married 39 years, soon to be 40. Um, don't have any children. So I think that has helped uh, balance that out because when you yeah. add into the equation grabbing your leg saying daddy daddy don't go daddy daddy don't go um that that can be really really difficult and i think officials have to find the balance whatever that balance is for me um you know one official working 50 games might be the right number another 75 might be the right number possibly you know the guys working 90 and 100 games maybe that's the right number for them if they're if they're working full time but you got to find the balance to maintain uh yep. priorities at home good good question Co correct thank you jd thanks for asking that johnny actually i wanted to ask you about that jd is there anything else we can touch on as far as the new block charge rule what tips do you have for us on how to officiate it with more accuracy well i, I I, obviously positioning is always going to be key to that and being straight lined is is even worse this year mm -hmm. get away with it in years past because you're looking at the defense okay great no <laughs> you're going to have to get an open look to mm -hmm. be able to take a play that happens like this and slow it down to where you, you, you pick it up earlier, you've got a better look at it. Now you can find the plant foot. Now where's the defender? I think we have to be um, like saying we have to be more mobile at the lead position because we can get we can get guys putting themselves out of position. But relative to the plays that are coming at you, you really are going to have to work hard to find an angle between players in order to try to make the time that you have to see that play expand versus catching it without without any knowledge it's yeah it's very interesting um because normally years past let's say we're in the lead where we're you know we're ensuring that the offense is legal but we're refereeing the defense we're certifying if the defender is in a legal guarding position and i've never ever really thought of looking at a pivot foot or having to adjust out of a potential stack when i can't see the pivot foot right it's going to be interesting 
yeah. and you're stacked on the pivot foot too. You might have to go off just feel and I don't want to say guess, but take an accurate uh, you know estimation on when or where they planted. Everything you said is true, and the best of the best can guess really good. The um, folks that are still learning the craft, uh, guessing is a bad thing. Put yourself in a better position so you don't have to guess. Hmm. What else do you want to share with us about communication? Um, what helped you be a successful communicator, both with coaches and players uh, throughout your career? You know, it's story-based, but uh, my, um, I think it was my second year. I'm working for Jim Bain uh, in the Missouri Valley. Boomer was a stickler. He wanted shirt tails in. Coaches don't rule this league. We do. I mean, we, I, I grew up refereeing with Jerry Pollard, John Higgins, and myself. And we would race to see who got to, got to give the technical foul. And we were supported by Boomer 100%. So that's the mode that I came in with. So John Adams took over the Horizon League. First year of work. Okay, great. Um, get done. And he says, hey, let's meet in Anderson, Indiana, which is halfway from Indianapolis to where I live. And I'm thinking, this guy's going to get me together and tell me how great I am. This is awesome. And I get a free breakfast. This is cool. So I drive down to Anderson. And he said, JD, here's the bottom line. I got 46 guys on staff. You rate number 45. Something's got to change or you won't be, you won't be on the staff in the future. And I go, well, all right, uh, shock to me, tell me what, he goes, you can't communicate. Now, I was in a sales, marketing, and branding position at our corporation at the time. That's all I did was communicate. But I had been influenced by Jim Bain's focus points. And I took him into the Horizon League, too. So following year, I flipped the switch. I, I was Mr. Communication. I, I still whack coaches. I think... Officials think you're either a hard nose or you're soft. And the reality is the good officials know when to go up and they know when to go down. They know when to go up. They know when to go down. That's both in how you deal with coaches with technical fouls, as well as how you communicate with them. You got to, you know, you got to have the ability to show that, no, I am, I am hot on this subject matter. So long story short, I put the communications to a high priority in the Horizon League get through that year. Great. John calls me and says, Hey, let's meet in Anderson. I'm thinking, Oh, this is going to be good. And he said, uh, I've got 46 guys on staff. You were rated number two. I need more Saturdays. I need more wins or Thursday. I need more of you. How can I get it? I tell that story to say, we all have the ability to make changes. And I think it's also a reflection of my absorption rate. It's pretty high. You don't have to tell me twice. And it was, and that's when I started reading books on body language, when I started focusing on how to communicate. It's when I learned to raise it when I needed to get my technical foul next media timeout. When we're done, I had switched up and I'm standing in front of their huddle coach. We all right. That was a, that was a BS technical foul. Maybe so coach, but you can't do that on my floor. It's not personal. Are we okay? Yeah, we're okay, blah, blah, blah. And then by the time I'm done at the end of that timeout, I got him laughing about something and we move on with the game. Um, I call that Kitsy love. Mike, Mike Kitts crafted that move. Something goes wrong in the game and that coach is really upset. At the next media timeout, lo and behold, he's the guy standing in front of that huddle and just giving him Kitsy love. 
saying, hey, are we good? No, we're not good. That was a uh, coach. We're going to work really hard for you and indicating all the positive things that are going to happen the rest of the game. And you get them back on your side. The trust goes back up and you move forward. Now, you and I both know that some days you can't you can't get them back. And sometimes that ends with, you know, see you later. But nine times out of 10, you can get them back on your side simply by addressing them man to man. Is it the is it the are we OK line saying that multiple times really? hammering that home which makes that encounter successful because i feel like a lot of times i might get myself in trouble going up to a coach after a tech so is it just about using the right verbiage there i think it's verbiage and i think it's also timing now if i whack somebody at, at, at i whack them now we're to and we go to the media and i'm there right after the media is over no that's not the right time I'm going to space that and give it another four minutes and work really hard during that four minutes. I think you have to look at the timing. I think you have to look at your role on the floor too. When I, when someone put the, the letter R beside my, my name, what that told me was they trust me. They want to make sure nothing is going to happen wrong in that game. Nothing. Your partner's in the tank. Both your partners are in the tank. It doesn't matter. The game still has to be refereed. I took ownership of the game when there was an R beside my name. Now, you would also know that if I was a U1 or U2 when I was working in other leagues, I still did the same thing, but I took the R responsibility extremely seriously because that coordinator is gonna get 12 phone calls the next morning. One of them shouldn't have my name on it. One of them shouldn't have my game in it. And so <clears throat> I, think, I think timing and timing what you say and what your body is saying. If we just whack somebody four minutes have passed, I'm in front of them and I walk over and go, you all right? <laughs> not going to work because I've got a closed position. But I go to him and I go, coach, we good? Everything good here? No, JD, I'm upset that you're part of it. Coach, whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm asking, are, are, are you calm down now? Are we okay? You know, trying to defer it to Let's be, let's get it general here. We're not talking about me. We're not talking about him. We're talking about, I need you in this game. And one of the lines I would use in those scenarios, if it wasn't working, would be coach. I know that you want to share with us your, your feelings. I get it. And I'll listen to you. You know that your kids need you. Hmm. Your kids need you. Great line. This. Let's go the next four minutes. You pay attention to your kids. I'll pay attention to the referees, and we'll both be good, all right? Yep, J.D., good point, good point. And, again, nine out of ten times when you say your kids need you, the bells go off in a coach's head. You're not saying they're bad. You're not saying they're horrible. You're just saying to them the reality. Your kids need you. And you're also saying, I don't. <laughs> they do. I don't, but you don't say that you're, you're trying to defer them back to what they should be doing. Um, primarily relative to stuff. Yeah, that's a great tactic. You know, I had a breakthrough with that this year, um, with our rapid response series, we have 13 episodes of that, but one, one, um, kind of strategy I started implementing this year with the community is getting them back to their role in the game. 
having the courage to say a line just like what you did. Your kids need you. That is a guaranteed win that is going to work 99% of the time because you're giving them a sense of awareness because they obviously lost it in that moment. And it's just great, truthful advice. It really is. And the other thing I said in there that, that I think um, coaches need to hear, and, I, and you probably didn't even hear the word. The word was, coach, this isn't personal. I remember working, I worked, um, uh, I'm off a year probably, but 2005, I had North Carolina at Rutgers uh, on December 26th. <clears throat> Literally, the only game in America that night. So every coach in America is watching that game. Every coach. And Hansborough got hammered a little bit, going to the rack, and I passed on it because they were up 20. And Roy jumped in the air, and before he landed, I whack him. We go shoot the free throws. We come back. I get in front of me. J.D., that's the cheapest technical foul. I, 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 he's, he's getting in me. And I said, Coach, whoa, 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 whoa. Not personal. What? He says, not personal. He says, what do you mean? I said, you just can't do that on my court. It's not personal, coach. I do that to any coach in America. He said, got it, and sat down, never said another word to me the rest of the night. Because they believe that when we adjudicate bench decorum, that it's a personal attack from that official to that coach, and now there's a problem. I can't trust him anymore. No, it's just not personal. And I think that building that language into those tough communication points uh, can really make a difference. I'm glad you said that. I'm going to add the personal line because I've been promoting the opposite end of that spectrum. We need you to be more professional. But I think to even couple them both in there in that line, that's double meaning. That's double the impact. I think that would be highly effective. Yep. Agreed. I like that. Uh, our friend Connor Schofield from Ohio has his hand raised and he'd like to ask a question. Hello, Connor. Thanks for being here again, JD. I absolutely love what you said about the absorption rate building off of that. When you're in your coordinator rule, what would you want to see specifically out of a younger official to be successful for me to be successful? Well, obviously gain experience is the number one thing. Um, you know, I call it banking plays. You got to bank plays in your head. So when they happen the next time, you know what you're going to do. And until you see them all, until you study them all, um, it's really hard. So that's the first thing. There's three things that coaches want. They want call accuracy. They want consistency. And they want you to be able to communicate with them. Obviously, working on call accuracy is about positioning. It's about having the internal fortitude to make the tough call when it has to be made and be right. Consistency is not only <clears throat> end to end, but it's game to game. It's half to half. Their, think, their lens is compare, comparing plays, always comparing plays and trying to be as consistent as possible. And then communication, we've talked about that a lot. <clears throat> what I'll tell you though is if, if I told them I've got the most veteran senior official. You've seen him in all the tournaments. He's average at call accuracy. He's average at consistency. 
but man, that dude can communicate and he'll, he'll talk to you. He'll, he'll, you'll be able to communicate with, or you can have this lesser experienced official. I'm telling you, he's 99% call accuracy. His consistency is unbelievable. Now you might have to work a little with him because he's still learning how to communicate. Which guy do you want? They're going to choose the first guy every time, not because he's a veteran, but because he will communicate with the coach in all situations. He knows when he knows when to tell the coach enough's enough, and you know that's it, and do it in a way that that um, he knows you're serious, kind of a thing, and also. The guy that can be there at the end of the timeout also be the guy that can communicate with him just along the way uh, when he's babbling about nothing. And too often, while I appreciate Paul's questions of me relative to what would you say and how you, would you say it, 99% of the time, my communication with coaches when I'm on the sideline is guttural. Uh-huh. I hear you. Oh, okay. Uh-huh. Yep. Yep. I'm listening. I'm listening to you. I've not agreed with the single thing he said. But what I'm telling him is, I'm listening to you. And that's all they want. Again, you can be an average play caller, average at consistency. But if you're really good at the communication piece, you, you can do a lot of good things. Now, if you're really good at call accuracy and you're really consistent and you can communicate, those are the 10 guys that I used on the Final Four uh, during my seven-year tenure as the NCAA national coordinator because they they've got the whole package and can handle the stress, you know, of that moment. Does that help you, Connor? Yeah, that, that helps a lot. Thank you. Good. Awesome. I feel like there's a lot I want to ask you, JD. Um, what didn't we hit on? What do you want to share with the um, dedicated audience of basketball officials that are listening in that we might not have touched on prior to this? Open-ended invite. Um, we've talked about communication. We've talked about what's important to coaches. Um, there's a lot that goes on there. I, I shared with Paul the other day that I have a, a three three phrase statement that I use a lot when I speak publicly about officiating, whether it's in this venue or to a chicken dinner somewhere for the rotary, or it doesn't matter where. Um, I think our job in officiating is to absorb chaos, create calm, and provide hope. Let me put this phone call off. Um, I'm going to say that again so you get it. Absorb chaos, create calm, and provide hope. If you look back at that picture of Tom Izzo, he's in chaos. My job is to absorb that and provide a calming, a calming demeanor. And if you would happen to look at that picture, uh, my facial expressions, they weren't high, they weren't low, I wasn't mad. It just, I have, I, I absorbed the chaos and I'm, I was creating a calm environment. The third piece to that is provide hope. For a coach, if you make, you know, Paul's gonna make three errors in every game. So if Paul makes three errors in a game and it's in the first 38 minutes, they could care less. They could care less. He makes one of those mistakes in the last two minutes when the game is on the line, and now he's had a really, really bad game. They don't have time to make up for the errors that we make in the last two minutes of a basketball game. 
It's why we do so much video replay in the last two minutes, because they need the hope that they're not, in their words, not going to get screwed by the official in this last segment of the game, the most important segment. So I think that if, if we keep that in mind and we try to be really, really good during the first 38 minutes of a game, and we try to be perfect in the last two minutes, we gain some advantage. Now, from a principally driven individual, I will tell you, that's also our job in life. Uh, so much of what we do as officials is about, about life and our relationships. And the reality is none of us have to look very far before we talk to someone who just lost a loved one or who has someone who has cancer or you know, they lost their job. You, you fill in the blank with whatever the, the, the hard thing that they're going through. And I think our job is to absorb chaos, create calm for them, that it's going to be okay, and provide them the hope that <clears throat> time's going to pass and this is going to be okay. And sometimes we all know, maybe, you know, grandma that has cancer, it didn't end okay. Maybe she passed. But in that time frame that you have with grandma before that happens, maybe there's some positive things that can happen. And I just personally believe that uh, in officiating and in life, we ought to have a focus on those three things. Yeah, that's a tremendous self-talk, that one, two, three punch. Um, during, you know, this doesn't have to be an officiating. It could be any aspect of life where you just feel that pressure or something bad happens. Do you find, did you find yourself almost self-talking that one, two, three punch when something big happened in the game that you needed to, you know, diffuse or settle? I don't know that I went... I mean, that, that's um, those, that three, three stage punch is part of my DNA. Hmm. And so I think it's, it's, it's always there in those moments where things were winding up, we're at a media timeout and you got 30,000 people booing you at the, at the top of their lungs. I am a huge proponent of self-talk. I mean, when I when I grew up in the Big Ten, I was refereeing with Eddie Hightower, Jim Burr, Timmy Higgins, Steve Wilmer, Ted Hillary, and I'm a 30 year old, you know, snot with, you know, I, I'm I'm just a punk, and I remember walking on every one of those floors, and I'd be in that 30 minutes out there going, I belong, I belong here, I'm the best official here, pounding in my brain, reinforcing the message that. If I didn't belong here, he wouldn't have hired me and put me in this particular game, no matter what it was. And I will tell you, my first year of Division One, getting 25 games right off the get-go, I was in games I should have never been in. So self-talk was really, really necessary for me. And I would rely on that early on, but I'd also rely on it later in my career when, you know, the environment continues to get more stressful and more stressful and more stressful. And those opportunities to, to pound yourself, positive reinforcement, <clears throat> who you are as a person, what you're showing body language wise, how your demeanor is, all that kind of stuff. Uh, I'm a huge proponent of self-talk. And I'm also a huge proponent of breathing exercises. Uh, find a massage therapist near you and say, hey, teach me some breathing exercises at at timeouts, when the place is going nuts and you're going through a breathing exercise to do two things, slow down your heart rate. And uh, if you breathe from, from, from your gut instead of your chest, 
it releases a different endorphin in your body and literally continues to bring down and calm you. And nobody ever knew when I was out there that, you know, there was stuff going around in my head, but I had mechanisms to help my body um, deal with the stress that was involved. I think I heard you talk about the breathing exercise before and you used the three second method. Specifically, if you want to hear about it, uh, one of the things you can do, and again, this is stomach breathing, not, not up here in your chest, but if you take air in for three seconds, then hold it for three seconds, let it out for three seconds, hold it empty for three seconds, rinse and repeat. And you go through that two or three times and you will, uh, all of a sudden you're more relaxed. Now, where I started using it, uh, when I was, you know, doing too much business, doing too much refereeing, going around, I was, well, let's just put it this way. I, in Indiana, if you get too many speeding tickets, you get to go to a thing called defensive driving school. And I got my bachelor's, my master's, and my doctorate in defensive driving school. I was an idiot driving on the roads. So I was constantly in stress and getting mad and all those kind of things. And I went, I sought counseling to say, what can I do? And, and the breathing exercises came from that. And it would calm me down in my car when the 45 mile an hour farmer driving in front of me and I had to be someplace, you just chill, you just chill. Then I, then I applied it to officiating and it probably helped me more in officiating than it did in, in life in general. And just to be clear, I haven't had a speeding ticket in like 20 years. Can't believe I said that because that means tomorrow I'm going to get popped. But there you go. <clears throat> I just got pulled over yesterday doing 84 and a 70, and the cop was nice enough to not give me a ticket. So I want to shout out Officer Dominguez of the New York State Troopers <laughs> Association. <laughs> that was irresponsible of me, by the way. Yes, I feel your pain. <clears throat> That's probably the other thing we haven't talked about. Um, you know, interesting in those, these kind of, and I, I don't know what your timing is. If we've already used it up, just tell me, Hey JD, shut up. I'm okay with that. But, um, many times people want to know about the NCAA tournament and how do you, how did you choose guys and how did you advance guys? And <clears throat> at the end of the day, I watched 67 games myself. I had four guys, my regional advisors that were doing call action reports and so I would take the data from the call actually reports, match it up with what my eyes and my gut told me, and it would just clearly, you know, um, delineate those who are in the top tier and those who are in the bottom. The problem is, uh, <clears throat> I think when I started, when I got to the final four, I had, I think, 13 guys my first year that I thought qualified and should be there. <clears throat> well, I could only take 10. All right, move on. My last year in 2022, I think I had 21 guys that um, met the standard for working the final four, both eyesight, gut, and what the data backed up. Um, problem is you got to send, you got to send a bunch of them home and they're, they're very deserving of working a final four. So I, I never did anything. How do I say this? I wanted to be able to justify with the data what my eyes and my gut told me and uh it seemed to work well for me uh through the process so you found the balance between math and art dude 
science and art will always be a part of officiating. Um, there are people who believe it's 80% science and 20% art. I happen to believe it's probably 60, 70% art and the rest of it's science. Um, you have to know the science, but you got to apply the art of officiating uh, more often than not. Our friend Ben Lamprin has a question for you, JD. Ben, unmute and ask your question to JD. Yeah, just hit the unmute button. Yep, got it. Hey, JD, thanks for coming. I, I really appreciate it. Uh, my second year officiating coming up, starting later in life. I'm trying to do some varsity games this year, uh, so I should should make that court. Uh, and it was just really interesting what you said about you know being in sales and and, and you know talking all day long and using your communication skills. I've run businesses my whole career. Um, I run a big company today, and I literally command people all day long. Right, that's what I do for a living. Uh, I coach, I mentor. Uh, and I'm talking all day. And the, my first year, I get some high-level JV games, and the coach is going nuts, and I freeze up. I can't even talk to the guy, right? So it's really interesting that you, what you said really resonated, being able to take real-life communication skills and put them on the court. Um, my number one area for growth this year is that. So one guy this summer uh, at a camp I went to just said, just be yourself. You know, you got it in you. Just just un unlock it. And uh, you're, you're an official, but you're also Ben Lampron. Just, just go out there and be you. So that's what I'm going to do. Uh, but my question for you is, is kind of an interesting one. You, you, oh, go ahead, JD. I'll ask my question after. So there's two things that will help you be able to use those communication skills. One is to know the rule book inside and out. Just it's, it's gotta be ingrained in you and your confidence level will go up. Number one, number two, the more games you officiate, the more plays you see, the more confident you are about what happens in each and every game. When you have those two things coming together, all of a sudden you're like, Oh, I just, I just need to go tell that guy to, you know, back it down or, you know, I just need to go communicate with him. And your confidence level is going to be, I think the biggest thing that allows you to use all of your communication skills. Now ask your question. Yeah. Thank you for that. Uh, my question is, as you went through your career, uh, you know, starting out and ending up at division one, what did you think was the hardest level going from, you know, division three to division two, division two to division one? Like what was the biggest step for you in terms of, wow, this is a much different basketball game. Uh, that's a really good question. I, you know, obviously uh, flipping to the division one level is, is a pretty big step, but I would tell you that for me, it wasn't, it wasn't stepping to division one. It was the next step within it. It's, you know, once you get in, you want to stay. You want to be on staff next year, maybe a couple staffs, whatever. Then you want to get better games. And then as you get better games, then you want to work the conference tournament. Oh, I got one game. Now I want to work two games. Then you want to work the semifinals. And as you, as that progression happened for me, um, I became really, really aware of the difference between working a division one game and working Michigan, Michigan state mm -hmm. or in Purdue or, West Virginia Pitt or who, whoever it is, you know, whatever the big rivalry is. Um, I think there's a big, big difference that, and, and the same thing happens in the NCAA tournament. Uh, most of the, the new officials that I brought in the NCAA tournament, which I think in seven years was somewhere pretty close to 40 new officials in the, in the tournament in seven years. That means there's 40 guys that aren't working also, by the way, in case you 
forget that, but that those are hard conversations as well. But I think that, that knowing uh, that you can handle that level of stress and the environment and everything that's going on and still do your job at an excellent level, that was probably the hardest thing for me. And as you go from JV ball to high school ball to small college ball, you're going to, you're going to get pieces of that each, each time you move in those, in that stratosphere. And I, I just want to compliment you for being a lesser experienced official uh, when your age is a little higher. Good for you. Kudos, kudos to you. And I, and I hope you all he have heard me tonight use the term lesser experienced official for this exact reason. We are at a point where there's a shortage in America of officials and we need lesser experienced officials, whether they're 22 or whether they're 52, it doesn't matter. We need people to get in the game. And so uh, I'm very, very happy that um, you're, you're involved and you're uh, moving forward. So thank you. Yeah, thank you. Great question, Ben. I enjoyed that exchange. Um, does anyone else have any questions for JD before we get into the final segment? He wants this final segment so bad, I can't wait. <laughs> I really enjoy doing it with Roger. So I'm, I'm like, you know what, we got to, what took me so long? What took me 332 episodes to do a speed round? But uh, I got about 22 questions lined up for you. Um, do you want to get, are you ready for those? Or did you, is there anything else you wanted to break down? Good. Let's roll. Cool. Awesome. Now you won't hear any of the sound effects I add. Okay. You, you, you won't know what your score is until I review it, but um, this should be fun. So, all right, take your water. Let me get a sip. All right, JD Collins, you are here in the rapid round of questions. Question one, one book that you recommend. The Servant by uh, Hunter. What is your favorite movie? The Wizard of Oz. If you could only listen to one song the rest of your life, what would it be? Wow. <clears throat> Amazing Grace. Classic. Cardio or weights? Cardio. Morning or nighttime workout? Morning. J.D. Collins, what are your biggest pet peeves? When people waste my time by being late. Because <clears throat> in reality, if you're showing up at five after nine when you're supposed to be at nine, you're wasting somebody's time. I don't want it to be me. J.D. showed up on the Zoom at 622. I wasn't ready for him. Nobody's going to wait on me. Trust me. <clears throat> Uh, JD, what's your favorite arena to work a game? I got to break that into large arena, small arena, uh, large arena, um, Madison Square Garden, Wisconsin, um, small arena, Roberts Arena in, in Evansville, Indiana, seat, seated 10,000, but it was, it was just right on top of you and the, that arena is no longer there, but. I like that environment, the, the Duke environment where everybody's just now speaking of Duke, that's one of my favorite arenas too, for this reason. 
it's it's vertical. I mean, it's right on top of you. Seventy five hundred fans. They're 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 right on top of you. And half court <clears throat> does not have media personnel. Those are student seats. Media is in the top of the gym, and it's got to be one hundred and thirty degrees up there. Makes me really happy. What is your favorite saying or slogan? Absorb chaos, create calm, and provide hope. That was easy. That's a winner. Would you prefer an overtime thriller or a regulation buzzer beater? Overtime thriller. Are you a no call or an N1 guy? Probably N1 because I could put a little flair into it and um, make sure everybody knew that it was, you know, it was counting. Speaking of the flair, what are your thoughts on over-emphatic N1 signals? I, you know, that would probably be one where I would have to say, do as I say, not as I did, because I had some, I had some juice whenever I gave the N1. I mean, I, I cranked her up. <laughs> All right. My, my next question is on this topic, but you can't say the N1 signal. What was your favorite hand signal? On the baseline, team scores, and I originated the, the point. I have really bad little fingers. Can we that, tuck that? Can we tuck the pinky in the thumb? What's that? Can we? Can we? When you point, can you tuck your your pinky in your thumb, or no? You keep it like that. So after they, I'd start doing this, and you know, I my my fellow referees would bust my chops like, "What are you doing?" I said, it's a directional point. You know, if you have an out of bounds, you, you point. Well, what out of bounds? I said, yeah, but we're going that way. And I, I, I just started doing that. And seriously, there were probably three or four things I did specifically to brand myself so that when people saw me refereeing, they'd go, oh, that's JD. Because if they're saying your name, you're in the hunt. <laughs> You just want to be in the hunt. That's all we want. JD, who are some of your favorite officials to watch now? Well, I mean, obviously, um, you mentioned Ron Gruber earlier. I think Ron is is um, really, really good. I think James Breeding out of uh, Louisville, Kentucky is, is really good. John Higgins and I grew up together. John has a command for the game. Um, I, I enjoy watching those three among others. Um, there is, um, there's a plethora of lesser experienced officials out there that are coming up and I, I enjoy watching them earn their stripes. I enjoy watching them experience that coach or this situation, watching them fail, watching them learn from it and watching them do it, you know, the right way. That's a perfect segue into my next question. Who are some officials on the come up that you're impressed with? Um, there's a ton of them. Uh, Paul Sells uh, from the Big Ten, uh, Chance Moore coming out of uh, out of the Big Twelve. Um, the SEC has four or five guys um, that are they're really good. Todd Austin, KB Burdett, uh, several others. Uh, out west, uh, you've got Nate Harris, you've got uh, Scott Brown, um, and um, Randy Richardson out of, uh, of the Phoenix area. Um, the East Coast has just a plethora of, of good, lesser experienced officials that, that are they're coming along. And, you know, 
have bringing 40, 40 referees into the equation, including Amy Bonner. Um, I think Amy's a terrific official, period, full stop. And uh, I enjoy watching her. She's, a, she's in the FIBA World Championships on the men's side right now. Uh, it's a really, really a good thing. And I enjoy watching her make the transition from women's basketball to men's basketball. Um, none of us truly understand how hard that is. Only she can understand that. I don't know Tran Chance more, but he's making his second appearance on the uh, rapid round of questions. So he's becoming a bit of a show favorite. So good job, Chance. Um, JD, what is the funniest thing a coach has said to you? Can I get a technical foul for what I'm thinking? And your response? Absolutely not. He said, good. I think you're effing horrible. I gave him a technical foul. He said, you said I couldn't get it. I said, think it. You just can't say it. <clears throat> Name some of the best college basketball players you've ever officiated. Oh, my. Um, By the way, was that psycho, was that um, Tyler Hansborough moment? Was that the psycho T incident? No, it was not. It was not. Um, <laughs> uh, wow, that, that one always stumps me. And here, here's the reason why. I think we as officials are, can I pontificate while we're in the middle of this question? Yeah. I think officials are trained to be as unbiased as possible. So it annoys me when I hear officials go, well, Smith did this and Bob, you know, Bobby did this and they name the players by name. Mm -hmm. No, that's number 24. That's mm -hmm. number 25. That's number 30. Train ourselves to not be biased in every way possible. And you asking me that question, I, I don't know. There's a lot of really good players that I've had in a, in a 20 year on the floor career, but I don't know that I can pull one or two of them out of the college game. I, I will tell you the best two players going at it that I've seen in 2008. Um, in 2008, uh, the Olympic team was preparing to go to the, the Olympics and I'm a FIBA official. So, I go to Las Vegas and work the Olympic team for five days, me, Tommy Nunez and another, another official. And, you know, you had 18 players walking up and down the floor doing nothing, but that was when Kobe was the man. I mean, he was 100% the man and LeBron was maybe two or three years deep. I don't know exactly how far deep he was, but he wanted to be the man. And I watched those two go at each other five days straight, twice a day, Every play was was a uh, highlight film, and get getting to see that. And you know, at that time, Kobe, Kobe had gears that LeBron never dreamed of having. Now, obviously, LeBron has come of his own, and he is who he is. But it was uh, that was really a special opportunity for me. That was a really uh, interesting story about the pros. But I really loved your answer. I really do, because I feel like officials get so caught up in the school, the coach, the player. They know the records. They know what they're, they're averaging. They know where the kid went to school. And honestly, I've never cared about that stuff. I've never cared about it. And I don't see any benefit of looking too deeply into who you're officiating. You said it perfectly. It's just the 10 players on the court. 
couldn't agree more. And it, even to the point where, obviously, I'm a little blanked by the question. Uh, so mark me as a minus on that question. Okay. I, I'm blanked by it because they're, they're, just, they're numbers. Yeah. Great numbers. Now, I will tell you, in 2008, in the Final Four between UCLA and Memphis, Derrick Rose and Kevin Love, yeah, I knew who they were. Derrick Rose had gears I never dreamed I would get to see. That dude was unbelievable. So, yeah, I can I can say, yeah, uh, Derrick Rose is unbelievable. But it's just I, I think we spend too much time on that. I feel like in the pregame too, just to stay here for a second, we we talk about this too much. I've I've heard officials bring it into their pregame discussions about coach personalities, player tendencies, and I've never seen it play out the way they say it's gonna play out. So I don't talk about those things and I, I don't promote talking about those those type of things. What's your thoughts on that? Some, there's some benefit to generalizing and knowing what's coming, but I would be in locker rooms and they'd say, well, Smith's going to do this. And, you know, Jones is going to do that. And I go, Hey, what number are they? And they look at me like, well, you know, who that, no, what number are they? I, I want to know what number to look for. And it, it would, it would send a message to my partners that, Hey, back off the, you're going to have dinner with the guy after the game. Right. Next question. Let's Next roll. question. Back to the speed round. Uh, a retired official from another era that you'd like to work a game with. Oh, that's really good. Um, Dick Cartmel from the West Coast. Dick had a, a feel for the game and an understanding and an ability to communicate that was unreal. I got to watch him referee, but I never got to, to referee with him. Um, you know, I, and the reason probably I popped the West Coast is I didn't work out West. I worked in the Midwest and the East and the South. Um, he's probably one that jumps out at me. Funniest thing you've been called by a fan? <laughs> um, many can't be repeated on this stage, uh, but... Um, Usually, usually somebody popping uh, a comment about my ears and my physical characteristics was, was, um, you know, calling me dopey or calling me whatever they could come up with was probably uh, funny to me. Little did they know you were a great listener. <laughs> Ask my wife that question. <clears throat> Couple left. What, uh, what do officials do that make you cringe? when they don't, when they, you know, I, if I could tomorrow, I'd go back and referee physically, my knees won't allow me to do that. In fact, I can no longer run. I, I walk three miles every morning. Uh, but if I, when I, when I see guys that are being lazy on the floor that are picking up checks, my post game with them was not, um, kind, gentle JD. Uh, it was, you're a travesty to this game. And I have I have said that line on numerous occasions when I would pop in a gym and not let them know I was there because I had a, I kind of had seen some stuff. And I'm thinking of one particular official and got in the locker room afterwards and said, are you hurt? I said, no, I'm not hurt. I go, then you are lazy 
and you're a travesty to this game. That really bothers me because I would, I would just one more game. That's all I want to referee one more game. And when I see people that, that don't respect the game enough, that, that really gets at me. What's one rule change you'd like to see? I'd like to see the number of timeouts and just the, just the amount of video and everything that we have to use because we're so visible. Uh, I'd like to see that revert back to five years ago, seven years ago. Uh, when I grew up refereeing, you just had to be right. Is all there was to it. I mean, and we miss calls, but it's part of the game. I'd like to see us move, move back. And, and my peers, in the NBA and <clears throat> other professional sports forever were saying to me, Hey, do whatever you have to do to, to keep it where it's at. Don't, don't let them go one more step. Don't let, cause they're just going to keep going and keep going and keep going. Now in golf on Sundays, we see them, they got earbuds in on the 14th hole and we're talking to the guy that's leading the tournament. He's telling us what, what he's going to, you know, I'm going to hit a five iron cause it's 282 yards or whatever, whatever it is. Um, it's really hard to think we're going to move backward, but I don't think we can. Two left, the most or some of the most challenging coaches to work with. You're, you're retired now. I am retired. Good. Plan on coming back. So um, I probably had the most, and he, you know, he, he does a radio show in Indianapolis, Dan Dockage. Um, every once in a while, whenever they get sideways on an officiating issue, he'll, he'll literally on air say, that's right, JD. Did you hear that JD? And he'll throw my name out there so I can throw his out there. I think Dan tried to be someone that he played for and he wasn't. And had he not done that, I think he could have had a successful career in the coaching environment. It's just really difficult whenever coaches make it about them and not their players and not the school. That's only one name I'm giving you, and that's probably where I'm going to stop. And lastly, one fun fact that no one here knows about you. Wow. One fun fact about J.D. Collins that no one here knows about me. Um, I, I'm a farm boy from Indiana. I live in the country. I drive an hour and a half to get to the airport every time I go. Um, I hunt, I fish, I, I would rather, I would rather be in nature in those settings than almost any other place. Well, JD, it was a pleasure listening to you speak tonight. You taught us a lot. Um, I can't thank you enough for your time. Thank you for coming on. We really appreciate it. Well, thank you. And, and I meant what I said earlier, I kudos to those who are on and who are listening and certainly to you, Paul, for what you're doing to help officiating. Uh, we nationally need more of what you all are doing. And, and if I can ever be, uh, if I can ever help in the future, you've got my number, please. Thank you for listening to the Crown Refs Podcast. Serve the game. We'll take it. Score it. Hey, score it, partner. Score it. <laughs> yeah, bad boy. I got, I got a funny story to tell you, Paul. So you were asking about signals. There was a point in time where I would, I would post a foul and I would jam it like that. I would, 
Damn, that looked like a strikeout signal. Baseball. Rich Falk, who is, you know, the Big Ten coordinator. In 18 years I worked for him, he never called me a single time on a play. That's just, Rich didn't do that. He called me one time to say, uh, J.D., I was noticing in the um, in the game last night that when you counted the basket, you went very emphatic. And I think this upsets the coaches. So you might want to back off of that just a little bit. So I did. <laughs> Gentlemen, great to be with you tonight. You all have a good evening. Paul, thank you. Thank you, partner. Talk to you soon.